Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. My guest today is author and professor of public health and public policy, Catherine Fennelly. She's the author of Family Declassified, Uncovering My Grandfather's Journey from Spy to Children's Book Author. In Family Declassified, the author delves into the rationale and consequences of family secrets by studying her grandfather, Francis Colney, a high-level spy for the Allied forces in Europe. Francis abandoned his family and fled to Mexico for 20 years. Until his death at age 93, he never spoke of his true origins, his work as a spy, or the murder of his sister and nephew at the hands of Hungarian fascists. Catherine Fennelly is an emeritus professor at the University of Minnesota, known for the breadth and quality of her social science research. In this book, she applies her expertise to an investigation of the life of her maternal grandfather, a Hungarian immigrant who arrived in the U.S. 100 years ago and became the head of an elite espionage unit for the Allied Forces and an award-winning children's book author. Dr. Fennelly, welcome. Thank you. Please call me Kathy. Okay, Kathy. You know, this book, when it came to us, it it was such a thrill to see it. And it grandfather's service or experiences in World War II and then his, his later later life as an author. And you don't, can't imagine a children's book author having such a past. <laughs> so, I know. Um, yeah. How do you explain that? I mean, uh, I guess we have to read the book, right? <laughs> well, you know, there were so many contradictions in my grandfather's life. Uh, one of the big contrasts that I emphasize is that he was clearly a war hero, and I present, I think, good evidence of that in the book. But he was also not a good father, and he abandoned my mother and my grandmother and, and my mother's sister multiple times. He had many girlfriends. and um, But he was also a very charismatic man who... People were attracted to him. When he walked into a room, they would all eyes would turn toward him. He had a very soft voice, a lilting Hungarian accent. And so he was very attractive to people. And he had a very sensitive side, which I think came out in his uh, the writing of, of these children's books. Yeah. So I'm, I'm guessing, like, what years did Hungary start to have a problem in World War II, was it right at 1939, or was it earlier in the 30s? No, or? no actually, well, it depends on what you mean by problem, but um, it, the, it, Hitler invaded Hungary in 1944 toward the end of the war, mm -hmm. and that's part of the tragedy of Hungary, is that in 12 months, uh, something like 600,000 Jews in Hungary were, were murdered uh, when the Red Army was circling Budapest and was about to liberate the city. And uh, when Hitler's army had been pretty much defeated elsewhere, um, so that was just a terrible, terrible tragedy. And it was one that my family suffered through, although I learned that quite late in life Yeah, I, researching this book. I mean, just having studied a little bit of World War II, you, there's not much discussion about Hungary at all in uh the history of World War II, and you know, as you mentioned, the Germans invade late. So they did. Uh, I mean, Hungary joined the Axis powers in 1940, right? Um, but they 
were sometimes lukewarm in support of the Axis. They they were there are many Germans, and there was there was a good deal of sympathy for Germany in some uh, quarters in in Hungary. But there also was a strong independent movement. And there's as well there's a tremendous difference between what was going on in rural parts of Hungary and Budapest. I mean, Budapest was a center of exalted Jewish life. It was the second largest. Um, city uh, or had the second largest Jewish population in Europe after Warsaw uh, and Jews had quite quite high status um, and that's another part of the tragedy because it meant that after the invasion um, of Hungary by Germany many many Hungarian Jews refused to believe that they would be in jeopardy refused to believe that they actually would be deported as they had begun to learn was happening to Jews in other parts of Europe. Yeah, so I guess uh, the Holocaust came late to uh, Hungary, I guess you could very say. Very late, very yeah. late. Yeah, I can imagine. If I wonder how much Hungarians were aware of what was going on in other parts of Europe to uh, Jewish populations. Was that, was that known, do you think? You know, uh, it became known, and it's not just how much Hungarians knew, but uh, I write uh, about... In the book, I write about the extent to which Western allies were suppressing information about the extermination of Jews in Europe for a very long time. And some prominent Jews were also concerned that uh, if the word got out that they were being uh, persecuted, that that would reduce sympathy for the war effort. Uh, I know Roosevelt uh, and Churchill had some concerns about that. And so... As information began to get out about particularly the, the plight of, of Jews in Poland um, and in Germany, uh, it was suppressed for a very long time. So in Hungary, it, it's true that the word got out eventually, um, but it was late and it was just very difficult for people to believe and to swallow. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the Kalne family at that time. What, what was Francis uh, up to at that point? Right. Well, and that's one of the things that haunts me, to be honest, about this story, is that my grandfather was the head of a highly classified unit of the Office of Strategic Services that was called X2 for the Balkan region. And so he, he had uh, charge of intelligence in the Balkan region and also in several other parts of, of Europe, including Hungary. Uh, he had, it's, it's quite clear that he knew the extent of the persecution of Jews in Hungary um, in 1944 after after Hitler invaded. It's not clear if he knew immediately the fate of his sister and his nephew who were murdered there. Um, but he has headlines that were available to people showing what was going on in Central Europe and in Hungary, uh, and cries for help that were beginning to emerge. So he knew what was going on, but he never spoke of it. And what was going on is that my great-grandmother, Rosha Margolit, uh, was living with Ferko's sister, his, his older sister, Babala, um, and they were in Budapest, and uh, at the time when Jews were forcibly removed from their homes and put into yellow star houses to make it easier to deport as many as, as possible to extermination camps. Um, and my grandfather's sister, Borbala, at the very end of the war, 
was taken to the Hungarian fascist headquarters, the Aerocross headquarters, and was beaten to death. Mm-hmm. And one month later, her elderly mother, Rosa, died of heart failure. And Rosa's grandson, Barbala's son, had been locked into a forced labor camp up by the Austrian border where the Germans and, and the Hungarian fascists had taken many Jewish uh, men and, and some women as forced laborers on rail lines often in the dead of winter. And he was shot weeks before that labor camp was uh, shut down mm-hmm. by the Red Army. So the question is, what prompted the silence of my grandfather and when he, he clearly knew after the fact, if not exactly when it happened, uh, what had occurred. On that note, we're going to take our first break. We're talking to Catherine Fennelly. We'll be right back. Sunbury Press Books brings the reader unique and independent works of fiction and nonfiction. Oxford Southern is our educational and academic imprint. Releases such as Philip Mosley's Telling of the Anthracite, Art a la Carte, a memoir of a wayfaring art teacher by Marianne Bickett, and Mildred Schindler Jansen's autobiography, Surviving Hitler, Evading Stalin. Click on the Oxford Southern link for more at sunburypress.com. I'm back with Catherine Fennelly, the author of Family Declassified. We're talking about her grandfather, Francis Colney. And uh, I'm, I just have, I'm curious as to when did he start working with the OSS? Do we know? Well, he began before the OSS actually had been uh, established. So he was working in oral intelligence mm-hmm. uh, for the government in uh, 1941. And then when the um, U.S. joined the war uh, and, and the there was an office uh, called the Coordinator of Information, which was established, and that became the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, and the OSS in turn after the war, so it became the CIA. So right. my grandfather's work for the government uh, for those agencies spanned a uh, little bit be earlier, it bled uh, earlier and later than the war itself, 1941 to 45. Yeah, it's very interesting that uh, he's involved in that way and he's he's in embedded in a nation that is uh, a member of the Axis. So... Uh, and he had relatives who were members uh, his well as i've mentioned you know his he had siblings and his mother who were living in Hungary with to have been given access to very highly classified information but that i think speaks to his uh, talents and yeah. you know he he spoke seven languages uh, which made him very attractive to the government because they wanted to have people who could communicate and who could train spies and counter spies from uh, various parts of, of Europe and particularly the German controlled and, and Italian controlled parts of Europe. I mean, uh, and he was able to do that. I mean, he, what he was doing was at great risk to himself and his family. Yes. And he um, it sounds like he managed to keep that secret the whole time. He did. And one of the things, I mean, there's so many reasons for keeping these things secret. And I've learned since in my research that it's, it's very, very common. But if, uh, when I read the, you know, I went to, to the National Archives and I spent three days looking through his declassified files there. And one of the things that I read over and over again was the emphasis on secrecy and classification that the government placed on 
its on its uh, employees, and so it was completely forbidden to reveal that you were working for the OSS, um, let alone that you were traveling to Europe. And and there were very specific instructions given about what to say if you were asked this, and to pretend that you were just you know traveling for work or working in in uh, a different area, import export or whatever. Um, and the penalties were very clearly specified that that was considered treasonous if you yeah. divulge classified information. So I think that was one of the, the things that led to his silence for so many years. Sure, sure. And I mean, that's still true today with, with the CIA. It's not like CIA, CIA agents walk around with the cards or badges. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, associations are so important that they're kept secret as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about the family, as I'm losing my voice here. <laughs> Obviously, um, there's a, there's a, some real tough stories here with, with close relatives, but, right. but also well, a broken family. It was a broken family. You know, one of the things that happened that was so tragic is that when my grandfather, he was born in 1899, and one year later, when he was one year old, his mother was put into a psychiatric hospital. They called it an insane asylum. And she was there for at least 25 years. So during that period, he never saw his mother. And in fact, in his personnel records and those of his older brothers, they said she had died. And his father took a mistress uh, who was a Catholic uh, mistress. And uh, in some of those records, her name is listed as if she were my grandfather's uh, mother, but she was not. And then, as I had mentioned earlier, after the war, when she was released, she went to live with her, her older, uh, one of her, her oldest daughter and Ferco's sister. Um, and... That makes it doubly tragic that she was in Budapest after the Nazi invasion and had to live through the tragedy there and the murder of, of her daughter. Um, now, in the meantime, uh, my grandfather left Hungary when he was 20 years old. Um, he came legally because he was in the merchant marine, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, which was falling apart at the end of World War One, And he uh, came to the United States and... His brothers, just one year later, tried to come to the U.S., but were diverted to Argentina. And so he and my grandfather had very close ties to his brothers and to Argentina. And in fact, my mother was born there. Mm. Um, my grandfather abandoned my mother and her, her mother and uh, my mother's sister in Argentina. And then they, uh, they would go back and forth to uh, Hungary, to the U.S., and my my grandmother and her two daughters were in Hungary in 1933, the year that Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. Um, and it was also the Depression, of course, and, and they were penniless, and they had no, no way to leave the country. And so my grandmother reached out to someone. She had a farmer she'd known in upstate New York, actually, when they lived there, and got passage to come to the U.S. So the family was broken, and my mother was quite estranged from her father for those reasons. Um, and that's why it's ironic that I'm the one telling my grandfather's story, because I barely knew him. He was yeah. in Mexico for most of my childhood. My mother almost never talked of him. And yet there were a couple of circumstances, uh, things that came to my attention that then led me to want to research his life. But your mother never knew his 
his role in Europe in the OSS, though, right? She never she never talked about her father at all, except <clears throat> bitterly about his girlfriends and yeah. uh, some some other things. He did come to visit maybe once every three or four years, uh, so there was a little bit of contact. But it wasn't until I uh, got a letter from a researcher in Austria that I realized that my grandfather was in the USS because this fellow was writing a book about Hungarian spies and and my grandfather was prominent among them. And uh, he wanted to ask me some questions. And I said, spy? I knew he wrote children's books, but I didn't know he's a spy. And I also then learned that our family was Jewish and I had never known mm. that. And that was a big surprise yeah. because uh, my family, uh, my parents were very ethical, very community oriented individuals, but completely secular. And uh, we never went to any sort of religious services. And my mother in particular was adamant that she had no uh, formal religion. And so to find out that our family was Jewish was, was actually quite remarkable for me. Well, 2020 perhaps, um, my younger daughter gave me uh, 23andMe as a present, and I found out that on my mother's side, I'm 98.4% Ashkenazic Jew. Wow. So that means that's, that's not some Jewish uncle in, <laughs> no. the, in the family. That means that all my mother's cousins, her aunts, her uncles, her grandparents, her mother, right. whom I knew intimately and who also never spoke of our Jewish ancestry, they were all Jews. and. So that's what led me to say, I, I've got to understand what was going on in our family and why this was all hidden. And that's what motivated my research. Well, Catherine, on that note, we're going to take our second break. We'll be right back. Sunbury Press Books brings you the history of Pennsylvania. Check out Lancaster's Golden Century, 1821 to 1921 by H.M.J. Klein. Donald Kent's The French Invasion of Western Pennsylvania or the Keystone Tombstone series written by Joe Farrell and Joe Farley. Click on the Books tab at sunburypress.com and find works of history, fiction, and nonfiction from the Keystone State. I'm back with Professor Catherine Fennelly talking about her grandfather, Francis Colney in the book Family Declassified. Uh, I wanted to ask one more question about him and his girlfriends. Uh, was there ever any thought that some of that was his cover, that he was actually deflecting from his family, or maybe he was still involved in something, or was this just a romantic interest? I, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't think it was a cover. Uh, one of the most... He, he had girlfriends before and after his government service and his whole life. When he was 80, he had a girlfriend who was in her 30s. <laughs> um, and he was living in California at that point. And um, he was very attractive to women and he enjoyed the company of women, whether he was married or not. Um, the, one very interesting relationship was with a woman who was also in the OSS and who um, – was his assistant uh, and a very skilled uh, OSS member herself. And she wrote a book uh, because during the McCarthy era, uh, during the hearings in the 1950s, when people who had been involved with uh, the, for example, Tito in, in um, Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia, who was uh, a socialist um, but was ardently anti-German, uh, Tito was um, an ally of uh, the partisans, were definitely allies of the the allied forces. And so my grandfather and the rest of the U.S. government, really, in the OSS, was 
supporting um, Tito and his regime and his the partisans. But after the war and in the 1950s, any association with whether it was Soviets or Yugoslav socialists and so forth suddenly came under suspicion. And so my grandfather's assistant uh, was someone who wrote a book about her own hearings and the fact that she was then dismissed and denied a pension from the OSS because of her association with my grandfather. Now, I believe she had a long-standing affair with him. There are people who, uh, in the OSS who wrote about that, and I, I quote them. Um, but that's perhaps the most complicated uh, relationship of, of that sort. But he, as I say, he had girlfriends in every port. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oy vey. <laughs> so, yes, uh, right. <laughs> right. So in uh, 50, 1954, he goes to Mexico. Right. Was that was that following or going with another woman? And then for 20 years, it was, is there, it, yeah. it was uh, and, and I, I have a section where I speculate about why he went to Mexico, because I do think that the McCarthy hearings were a factor, but I don't think they're the only factor. So I'll, I'll leave that open and I'll okay. leave the relationship with the, the woman I just mentioned open so people can can read about that. Um, what's fascinating about uh, my grandfather's time in Mexico is the way he reinvented himself. Uh his brothers, as I mentioned, had were in Argentina. My grandfather spent time with them. They were both very accomplished architects, uh, quite well-known in, in Argentina. And my grandfather never studied architecture. But in Mexico, he moved to a beautiful town about two hours from Mexico City called Valle de Bravo. And he began to design houses. And he designed about 20 houses in Valle de Bravo that, according to a journalist, a Mexican journalist I communicated with, changed the face of Valle de Bravo and raised its profile uh, as a tourist destination because they were so lovely. Um, he did that, but he also uh, began to cook and to write about cooking. And he published articles, for example, in House Beautiful about yeah. cooking. Um, I found a fascinating chapter in a book written by a journalist who who was describing the best meal she had ever eaten. And she has a full chapter on a meal that my grandfather prepared because it was <laughs> so delectable. He grew his own, you know, raspberries. He mm -hmm. cured his own meats. He uh, was always a good baker, and he actually designed and patented an oven uh, for bread baking. So he <laughs> was a gourmand. He was uh, a designer of houses, and he began to write children's books and to have enormous success uh, as a children's book author. Yeah, would you say that's what he's most known for today? No question. Yeah. If you Google his name, if you Google Francis Calne, what you'll find is in particular a book called Chucaro, uh, which won a Newbery honor um, and other children's books. Uh, and Chucaro, for example, has been translated into I don't know how many languages. Um, it's a book about a boy in Argentina on the Pampa who's uh, uh, enamored of a, a pony. And, and um, there's also... A kind of a political edge to that and some of his other books in elevating the plight of the poor and the downtrodden and uh, criticizing exploitation by wealthier landowners and so forth. Uh, and I have a cousin who's uh, quite a renowned political scientist who wrote an analysis of 
each of my grandfather's children's books, and and that's in my book, word for word. Well, he sounds like a genius. Uh, so he many was. abilities, a polymath, someone who had could master so many different things. He was. He clearly was. And that's what, in some ways, makes it so puzzling that he was also – that he had these these – great flaws in yeah. uh, in terms of, of his relationships with uh, certainly with with my mother and her uh, and her sister yes I guess you, know, you got to take the the bad with the good uh, I think his accomplishments his his contributions are very noteworthy as well and uh, they really are I was amazed at the letters the testimonials from people uh, above him in uh, intelligence in the United States during the war the praise that they gave him and the ways that time after time these superiors would say that he single-handedly improved um, access to the the, uh, decryption, for example, of uh, German Abwar communications, how he uh, led expeditions into fascist-controlled parts of Europe that clearly contributed to the success of the Allies in the war. Yeah, so I have to ask you, what does your grandfather mean to you today, knowing all this? You know, does he, does he, he comes across in some ways as almost like a sociopath, the way you've described him, yet he's, he has all this passion for things. Uh, it, he had to have passion for his family. He had to have. Well, I, I wouldn't go so far as certainly as to say he was a sociopath. He okay. was a man who, um, who treated his family poorly, both his first wife and then a second wife, and abandoned them. But uh, he was also a man who was influenced by my mother's resentment toward her father. Now, the, the family on the West Coast um, knew my grandfather much better because they were closer to Mexico. They would go down and visit him in Mexico when he lived there. And then he came in 1974 when he returned to the U.S. He moved back to California and my cousin, the political scientist, uh, Wendy Brown, whom I mentioned, uh, was very close to him then and looked over after him when he was uh, in his late 80s and 90s and before, just before he died and so on. And they adored him and, and she adored him and, and talked about how everyone who met him was charmed by him. So he was a charming man with flaws, with some deep flaws. Sounds like he just was extremely charismatic <laughs> and influential and uh, certainly very effective with his OSS work and his cooking and his architecture and his uh, writing of children's books and so on. So, Catherine, uh, you know, the book has been very well received so far. Uh, maybe talk a little bit more about uh, what you're doing with it and what's up next for you in the last minute or two that we have. Yes. Well, I had no idea. You know, I, I've done a lot of academic writing, but it's it's quite different. And I had no idea that uh, undertaking a project like this was a continuing full-time job after the book is published. <laughs> That's what I'm finding. Just um, trying to let people know about it. And I'm giving talks. Um, I did a, a, a talk the day before yesterday that uh, to a local group here was very well subscribed and, and well received, I think. Um, and I focused quite a bit on family secrets, which I would encourage people to look at when they read the book, because it's a theme that that appeals, I think, to many people. Why family secrets are maintained over generations, and what are the what are the implications of those? So, um, uh, on October first, I'm going to have a booth at the Brooklyn uh, Book Festival, which is a very large uh, festival, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, 
I have a friend in Minnesota who's going to teach a course on memoir um, in 2024, and she asked me whether we might consider the book uh, as a reading for that course. Uh, I've had requests for articles uh, from um, an editor, Jewish Jen, has given me some suggestions of places to write articles on how and why I undertook this project, uh, and so I'm I'm working on that. Um, the Center for Jewish Studies and the Center for Austrian Studies at the University of Minnesota uh, has asked me some questions about the book, and it may be that I'll be able to give a talk to people there, um, and on and on. I could go on for yeah. a long time about the people I've contacted and those on my to-do list. I have a very long to-do list right now. Oh, I can imagine, and uh, so do we, because this is a fantastic <laughs> book. This is perhaps the most astonishing family history that's come to us ever at Sunbury Press. It's uh, quite remarkable, just the uh, the layers to it and the the surprising impact of your grandfather. Thank, thankfully, he was he was among us uh, not that long ago and had a had a profound impact on those around him. And and the other thing that I try to emphasize in the book is the hidden tragedies of my relatives who were erased and forgotten. And, you know, of course, that's what the German, the fascists wanted to do, yeah. is they, they wanted to erase Jews and to have the history of Jews in Europe be forgotten. And so I feel very strongly now, the influence this book has had on me, the research has had on me, is to counter that and to say, no, we're going to remember my great-grandmother who was institutionalized, who saw her daughter murdered. We're going to remember my great-aunt who was murdered. And and so, what, for example, Viktor Orban in, in Hungary, the way that he has emphasized Christian nationalism and some very prominent factions in the United States echoing those sentiments, I think there has never been a more important time to bring these stories to light. On that note... Catherine, it's been great having you. Wish you all the best with this book. I hope that the Jewish Book Council also sees it as a very valuable addition. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts.